out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of a record label. It is the one and only Ron Johnson Records, the UK independent record label based in Long Eaton and operated between 1983 to 1988. And it was run by Dave Parsons, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. They had such artists as Big Flame, The Shrubs, A Witness, The Great Leap Forward, Stump, The Mackenzies, Twang, and The X, and not a lot more than that. But anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was the early formative years of Dave Parsons. Dave, it's over to you. Um, Well, I'm a couple of years older than you. I'm 1962. So, and I've got an older sister, three years older than me. Right. So um, the first record I ever bought was actually a present for her, and that was Abbey Road by the Beatles when that came out. And the first record I bought for myself was um, See My Baby Jive by Wizard. Yes. I guess it was about 72, maybe, something like that. It was was that murky world. Were were your parents at all into music? No, not really, because um, I was brought up in the Air Force. My dad was in the Air Force, and he was big into military bands and brass bands, and and they were quite a bit older than me as well. They were kind of in their 50s when I was 10, 12, something like that. So, um, no, they, they weren't into pop music at all. Yes, that's quite strange, because in that generation, normally they all... Everyone had children very early, you know, like women Women were often the wives, mothers were in their late teens and fathers were normally in their early 20s. I, I seem to find for myself and my friends around me. From yeah, I think, I, think it's I was adopted, they, they couldn't have kids of their own and they adopted me later on in life. So. Right, so there you go. So was you and your sister two adopted children? Yes, yeah. But not... Oh. We're not related, no. No, so she was the because uh, I had an older brother who was seven years old, and he was he was that period who was really into prog rock. So yes, Genesis, mm-hmm. Wishbone Ash, Barclay James Harvest, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman, I got mm-hmm. very excited by in my. Um, I'd sneak into his room and listen to uh, those sort of records with great excitement. Yeah, my sister was into quite a bit of that stuff. She was Genesis, Led Zeppelin, Rainbow, you know, the kind of and Stackridge and some of those slightly weirder folk bands and split ends, I remember. But she <laughs> took me in, I think it was probably 1978, I'm not sure, might have been 77, but I think it was 78 to see um, Thin Lizzy. And that was the first live band I saw. And they were supported by a punk band called Radiators from Space, who were an Irish band. And it's one of those old cliches that did change my life, basically. After being completely deafened for three days by the noise from that gig, I decided that that's all I was interested in. Yes, well, quite, actually. And Thin Lizzy at that stage were in their absolute sort of, their, their sort of zeitgeist moment, really, weren't they? They were brilliant. There was the Jailbreak tour, and they were absolutely fantastic. My God, I know. My first gig was Nine Below Zero, which was very exciting. So then... <laughs> Then you would have left school. Did you leave school at 16? I left school, bizarrely, at 17, because I stayed on to do A-levels, but was so disinterested in them, because I was in a band by that time. 
and basically I left so we could go and play some gigs. So I left at the end of the first year of sixth form. Right. 1979? Yeah. No, 78. Yeah. Yes. So was that a band that um, went on and recorded much material? Um, it was a kind of an early incarnation of Splat, to be honest. Right. A different, name, different name, but generally the same people. Yes, Blimey O'Reilly. That's, that's amazing. And then what happened um, through the 80s? Because, you know, 79, Thatcher gets in. We have a huge amount of unemployment. And a lot of the bands I've interviewed from the 80s indie scene were, you know, all had their job seekers allowance moment, enterprise allowance. So what was your early 80s time? Um, it, we went down the same route eventually, but I, I actually had a job when I left school because my parents um, would have kicked me out if I didn't have one. And because of my RAF upbringing, I was given a job at Eastman Ends Airport as a flight planner. Right. Really because my dad was in the RAF, so I spent a year and a half making flight plans up at East Midlands Airport and being in the band at the same time. So working night shifts and working like an idiot, basically kind of 19, 18, 19 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then the band finished. No, the band, band carried on. Uh, it, it changed its name. We, we changed the name to Splat in, I think, about 81, probably. Right. When we first, but we weren't doing many shows. We, we were doing bits and bobs. And then in 82, we did the manpower services thing. And I was working night shift in a biscuit factory and taking the £40 a week from the manpower services or whatever. Oh, and me, and, me and the guitarist basically started Ron Johnson. Yeah. The Splat's own purposes. In I think the label started in 82 and the actual first record came out in 83. Yes, the year the Dum Dum was your first single. That's the one. But we we'd done a few studio recordings before that in in eighty one. I think the first ones that had never been released. So were you aware at that stage in in the early eighties of um, that that kind of the rise of the indie label? You know things like Creation Records and the Living Room and Alan McGee and people like that. Um, I wasn't really aware of them. I was more aware of earlier indie stuff because I was a big record collector from the moment that punk started. So I had all the stuff on Small Wonder. I had every record that Fast ever made. Um, uh, St Pancras records with Scritti Politti. I had all the Rough Trade records from, with, with hardly any exceptions. Blimey. I had a massive record collection as a teenager because I spent... When I was at school, I spent all of my dinner money on records. I didn't eat anything. I just, and I, I used to go to Nottingham every Wednesday afternoon instead of um, doing double games and go to our, we had a fantastic record shop in Nottingham called Selectedist, which was an amazing record shop. And they had absolutely everything. So I used to go in and say, what's good this week? And they say, well, nag, 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 buy this band called Cabaret Volta. I said, I'll have that. And, <laughs> and they just threw everything at me. And, but I had a good relationship with the guys there and they used to give me discounts and free posters and all kinds of stuff. My God. And I went to see bands live as well. I saw most of those, saw pretty much every punk band live somewhere or other, every post-punk band. So yes. I was, along with my couple of good friends where we we just went, even though we were quite young, 17, I suppose, 17, 18, when we were doing that, we went all over the country to see people, but... Again, because my parents were older, they'd all started work when they were 13, 14, so they thought I was old enough to do stuff, I think. Yes, well, I suppose my dad, you know, would have been that generation who who left, you know, 
I suppose you just got left school at that time when you were sort of old enough to walk almost. Yeah. And then biked four miles to work, you know, and then sort mm -hmm. of do that kind of gig from the age of 15. That's why everyone from that generation, if they're still alive, are very worn up because their bodies have just been hammered all the time. So um, it's a bit of a, yes, it's kind of humbling really at that point. In the afternoon to go and see the jam in Scotland, for example, at um, Loch Lomond Festival. We thought, sorry, we'll just go to Scotland, and we went. So. God, that's very impressive and, and sort of courageous. Though my first car was the Mini 850, and it went to London quite a few times to see gigs. It was a very slow trip, especially coming back. God, it was boring. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, never mind. So then, what was the kind of, because we started a record label in 82, it's quite entrepreneurial, isn't it? Um, I think it was bizarrely that nobody else wanted to do it for us. So we just thought, sod it, we'll do it ourselves. Because I, I did have that, uh, that first scripted Polity EP, Skankplot Polonia, I think it's called, that had all the breakdown of the costs on the back of it. Right. And where you where you could get things done and it just seemed to me there's no reason why we shouldn't do the same thing so so we did really and I knew Fast Records had done that and I think Postcard were around just around that time as well. Yes. So there were, there were other people about I mean we, we hadn't thought about distribution we never even thought about that and so we didn't really, really think it through at all yeah. <laughs> yes. Just, as we did it we, we got enough money to record it then Somehow we got enough money to press it and master it, and we didn't have enough money to make proper sleeves, which is why I had such a ridiculous sleeve. You know, so. Right. We just did it and, and learned as we went along, really. Not very well, basically. Well, I don't know. Your roster is quite impressive, actually. I mean, the lucky thing is, and I suppose at the time you don't realise it, but, you know, there was there was a perfect period, and it was kind of, I don't know if it was perfect, but, you know, you had we had three music papers, weeklies, which, you know, Americans always say, my God, that's amazing, you know, that's fantastic, because if you have one or two monthly magazines, there's such a sort of pressure just to sort of cover the main bases that, you know, it's it's tricky, whereas you don't get that real obscure stuff. And uh, three weekly music papers means that they're going to have to fill it up with something. Plus, we had John Peel, and as I sort yeah. of realised, every every city and town in the UK had an indie night, didn't they? You know that mm -hmm. that had sprung up normally at the beginning of the week, from Monday to Wednesday, normally, because that's mm -hmm. when the the sort of person owning the venue would just go well have Tuesday no one else wants a Tuesday night it's like oh okay yeah. we'll have indie night then alternative mm -hmm. night so that was that was kind of bizarrely a, per, a perfect time to start a record label yeah it, it, it worked reasonably well I mean we never did it with any commercial intent or any expectation to actually make any money we, we just did it for our own vanity I suppose really because we thought we were the best band in the world like everybody does you know yes uh, and everyone deserved to it, so, yeah. Well, absolutely. The, the the joys of youth, really. It's it's kind of yeah. naivety and arrogance and and sort of enthusiasm and and yeah. sort of a healthy body at that stage in life as well, which helps yeah. as well, doesn't it? So then, so then you sort of decide to put on big big flame, which was quite you know one of the bands from the eighties, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's because the splat thing didn't really work out. We got played on PL a couple of times. We got a couple of reviews, but. I think it's Nottingham didn't have a very good scene at the time. There wasn't much going on in Nottingham compared to, say, Manchester or Sheffield or 
Leeds or any other places when, when we were playing in the early 80s, I don't you'd struggle to name another band from Nottingham other than Medium Medium, and they'd already split up by then because yeah. they were they were done by 82, I think, something like that. So and even they they weren't exactly household names. So we were in a bit of a vacuum and it never really happened for us. So but we got a distribution deal with part of the cartel, which at the time was called Nine Mile. No, it wasn't called Nine Mile. When we first started, it was called Red Rhino Midlands. Right. Red Rhino in York. And then they changed their name to Nine Mile. And they gave us a distribution deal for the first single, asked us to make the EP, the second one. So we made that. We did a very small tour of Holland and got recorded for the Dutch national radio that never got broadcast, but nice recording. And then came back to England to complete apathy. So we stopped that, you know. But then basically distribution said, is there anyone else out there who'd you like to make a record by? And I'd heard Big Flame on John Peel on a, in a session, I think. And it was the only thing that had stuck out to me as being kind of hugely different from everything else I heard at the time. And I wrote them a letter and they wrote back to say, yes, we've got um, something we need releasing that they couldn't they were kind of in a similar situation they they'd recorded this thing but they didn't have enough money then to release it so it was kind of serendipitous i think right and i was looking and they were looking and we we decided to um you know, join forces really yes that's quite interesting because i know i done an interview with miles copeland you know from that world that is irs and also the police and he said that um but you know he's talked about that first album he said that they'd done all the recording and all they and they get offered it to a and m a and m records mm-hmm. there was no cost to a and m it was a bit like look we've got this record you know and yep. with a certain amount of persuasion you know do you want to put it out you don't have to go to your finance department and say can we do this it's a bit like it's all done just do it basically and um he thought well okay then we'll do it we've got nothing to lose so it was kind of a similar a similar kind of deal really wasn't it yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it was ready to go and it was quite quick. And they were an interesting bunch in, in their kind of correspondence and their attitude was interesting to me. It had that kind of punky manifesto attitude of we only want to do this, this, this and this. And because I wasn't business minded, I, I didn't really care. I didn't think about it. I mean, with hindsight, it was a ridiculous idea to make only seven singles because they're... Um, proportionally very expensive and they don't make much money no. <laughs> but, <laughs> but interesting but at that, the time it seemed like the perfect thing to do yeah. i know but then it, you did strike gold because there's alan alan brown greg mm-hmm. who, who went on to be a professor in architecture in i think yeah. belfast and deal right. i have no idea what happened to deal by the way but yeah, i've done interviews awesome. with the other two so um yes they were quite an interesting bunch by based in was it hoon Hume? Yes, Hume, yeah, William, Crank, William Kent Crescent. Yeah. Yes, the rather sort I mean, of... They were always fighting with each other. They were a very volatile mix, you know. <laughs> they didn't... They kind of got on, but there was a triangle. The two, two got on at any one time. All three never seemed to get on at the same time. No, no, I got the impression it was a bit tricky, but... Uh, and they, but then, they were all very, very bright and very voluble guys. And they never stopped talking, you know. <laughs> So did you suddenly get that feeling of like, oh, this this might be a, an interesting sort of career almost? Um, well, the first big flame records, um, 
got very good reviews. It got single of the week, if I remember rightly, in at least one of the papers, maybe even two, and it got into the indie charts, which you know, is a bit of a fallacy, really, because you don't have to sell that many records to actually get in the indie charts. So I think that first record sold just under or just over 2,000, something like that. Right. But it got into the top 20 of the enemy indie charts, I think. Because I think basically the journalists just made them up. So <laughs> something they like, they put them in there. So, yeah. But it got good reviews, and then they got they they got very good live reviews, and they were a very good live band. They were good, exciting to watch, and it it gained its own momentum really because they were ready to make a second one almost as soon as the first because they'd already recorded the first one. Yeah. They were itching to make another one because that was old news for them. And they thought their next one was better than their first. So they, they were already, so one, two, and three were done. Four was in the pipeline before we even kind of, three was being sold. And then they said, we know this band called A Witness who are also looking for something. I said, well, send me a tape. And A Witness's first demo tape had some great songs on it, like in London and other stuff. And I said, yeah, great, that's fine. I rang up the distribution people. They said, yeah, cool, yeah. Yeah. Because they were pleased with the big flame um, reaction, so the three, four, and five, one and two had taken quite a long time to come out, about a year between them, and then three, four, and five came out within about three months of each other, if I remember rightly. So, did you sit down with a sort of a contract or anything? Did you, or was it the case that they just presented you with the material? You didn't have to sort of start putting in studio costs and stuff like that. Um, for we had we had contracts after the first one with Big Flame, which was the kind of standard indie deal of fifty percent of profits, and I, I paid for the studio time and all, all the manu- and basically manufacturing was taken up by distribution, paid all the manufacturing costs on a R and D deal, which I can't remember what that stands for, research and development in some worlds, but I don't know what the R stands for in music <laughs> recording. <laughs> I don't know, they called it an R&D deal anyway. And basically they clawed back their money first and then paid us anything that, that came out the other end. Nice. Which uh, in in big flame world never actually happened. And I think they all just about broke even. Yes. Was it around like 2000 you pressed up of each of their singles? I think we used to go for a first press of a thousand and then a, a repress of a thousand. but. Yeah, first singles were, were about 2,000 and we used to give away about 200 to journalists and radio stations. We had a reputation for giving away a lot to obscure radio stations in Sweden and Iceland and all over the world and stuff. But they've got us, you know, interest abroad. Yeah. Big Flame had quite, quite a few European tours as well. Nice. I know, it's quite an organic scene, sort of having done this show for a while. There was... An amazing story about this guy Thomas, who was from Germany. Who sort of was, pardon? Thomas Zimmerman. Yeah, that's him. Mm-hmm. And he's he's kind of being there with Dan Tracy, and then Anna McGee was there, and they sort of yep. they just all sort of become mates and sort of start a business, really, or well, individual businesses. And uh, it's like, well, that was casual. Was for us with. Big Flame, A Witness, maybe, maybe some of the others as well. But def- I went on a Big Flame, A Witness one with with him, met Thomas and his his German mates. Yes. And how did how did um, you know the band go down in Europe? Were they were they well greeted? 
Yeah, very. Um, in in Holland, they they were very popular, and we all because they knew the membranes and John Robb, and they all we stayed at the X's villa in near Amsterdam. So there was an introduction to the X, who later did stuff with us, and so yeah, they enjoyed Holland and in Germany. Yeah, I mean they didn't get huge huge crowds, but you know a couple hundred people would come and see them most nights probably. Yes, which is quite groovy, which is very groovy. Yeah. And then you got Stump as well, who at the time was one of the, another John Peel. I mean, basically, your label was a John Peel kind of, it was like Daft Bluggy, wasn't it, really? That period in the 80s where John Peel was playing yeah. Ivor Cutland, Daft Bluggy, lots of Welsh bands yeah. and, and lots of bands like, you know, A Witness, Stump and Bogshed. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to talk to Peel quite. I used to ring him up when he was on air and we used to have a chat maybe once a week or so. And because it turned, we had the same birthday, obviously different years, but the same birthday. And his producer, um, his name was John Jackson. Walters. John Walters was from my hometown of Long Eden. Right. And he was the one who played the splat record when Peel was ill because he said, This is from my hometown and played our splat record. And then um, I don't know, I got on well with Peel. I met him a load of times. And then we went for dinner a few times and stuff. and just a few chats. I drove with him to Germany once and we just kind of, I think he, I, I'm I'm a slightly old character. I mean, my new job is working with autistic boys and I've been doing that for a year or two. And I now realise that I am actually slightly autistic, but didn't realise I was back then. And we, we just got on well, because maybe he had those slightly autistic collector traits as well. We know, yeah. I never talked about Ron Johnson to him ever. It was one of my kind of inbuilt policies that I'd never ask him for anything. And I think he kind of maybe enjoyed the fact that I never asked him for anything. Yeah. So I just used to bring him up and, and chat rubbish to him, retrospectively thinking about it. We never really talked about anything, but just go, yeah, you're all right, go, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> I mean, 40 years between us or however many it was, I don't know, 35 perhaps, but, but yeah, we got on very well. Yes, absolutely. That's quite cool, actually. Yeah, Never talking about Ron Johnson records was must must have been quite nice. I mean, as yeah. as the as that decade progressed and you were you just sort of become you know almost darlings of the NME and the indie world. Did you how were you starting to sort of feel about the record label and navigating the next couple of well, the next chapter? Um, I th again, with the kind of benefit of hindsight, I think. Ron, Ron Johnson, Stump sent me a demo, which I loved and thought it was great. And they put out a record. I think the Stump record was a very good record. Uh, Mackenzie's were recommended to me by Big Flame. I was slightly worried that they were a bit of a copy of Big Flame in some ways, but people seemed to like them. And I quite liked the way they, they went in a different direction later, actually. Then I was offered the Shrubs because they were friends of Stump. And the Shrubs is a bit of a kind of, I wasn't, that was where things started to go wrong was with the Shrubs because of various reasons. Then there was the X record, which I think was a brilliant record. And the packaging was amazing. And we got single of the year and all kinds of accolades for that. But it was a financial disaster for, for reasons I can explain to you if you want. But, um, and then we did the Witness album, which was number 12. And then after that, I would say 
for me personally, it started to go downhill a little bit. If, if I look at it kind of very cold-heartedly, that the stuff after that was never quite as exciting as the first. I think ignoring Splat because that was kind of vanity publishing from, from Big Flame up to the Witness album, I, I think they were all pretty great records really. Very consistent quality from a label of that sort that that was definitely Ron Johnson. You know. Yes, absolutely. Because Stump, no, not Stump, the, the Shrubs. I did an interview with Nick Hobbs, who's mm -hmm. now in Turkey, alongside yeah. other people, including mm -hmm. Pete Murphy and someone else. I can't remember now. But um, yeah, so how did you, how was that kind of relationship? Was that a bit tricky then? Yeah, um, I don't, it's not Nick's fault, I don't think. I think it, it was partly the fact that I was young at the time, what would I been in when they were 85, I was probably 23 maybe, 22, 23. He was a little bit older, probably nearly 30 then. Yeah. He, he'd been Per Uber's manager or something along those lines. And he'd been knocking around with Henry Cow, Henry Cow Hod, Tim Hodgkinson and all those people. And apparently he was, he was the spotlight kid apparently for Beefheart. I don't know if that's true or not. And he came to me with all these, he's a very driven kind of character. And he came to me with these super long contracts compared to the ones I have with Big Flame and stuff saying, part of the first part will do this, 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 and this, and this, and blah, 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 blah. I go, okay, whatever, you know. But I wasn't that interested really. And did the same 50-50 deal with them, but he, the first record was was okay actually and was reasonably standard Ron Johnson fodder. We we made it, I paid the bills and it didn't make any money, but it didn't lose a vast amount either. It was kind of more or less break-even and got good reviews, decent press. They then went to do another one, which was the beginning of the problem, because he went to a quite an expensive studio, he went to I think it was Surrey Sound, it was called. Right. A witness, to, to put it in context, a witness had recorded the whole of their album at a studio in Leeds, I think, called Lion Studios for 500 quid. The whole thing. And I got, and Nick, Nick had taken the shrubs up to, I think it was Surrey Sound, and he'd done, I don't know why he'd done it, and I don't know why I hadn't asked him, because I was young and stupid, I hadn't asked him, he decided he was going to do direct cut mastering, which I hadn't really heard of at the time, but basically it's straight, straight from the recording onto a lathe right. thing. And it was, it, and this was for a four track EP, I think, or six track EP, maybe? No, four track EP. And it came in at something like three and a half thousand pounds. Right. And they didn't like it. They decided they had to re-record it because it had been direct mastered and they didn't like it. And I, can't, I don't know why I said, said yes. I said, okay, you know, if you want to re-record it, re-record it. I should have just said, okay, that's the end of that. Forget it. If I'd, if I'd have thought about it at all logically, because there's no way on this earth they were ever going to recoup the money with that kind of recording cost against our normal sales. Yes. So he paid for it and I, I ended up owing him. And Ron Johnson being Ron Johnson, I didn't have a massive budget to suddenly give him three and a half thousand pounds. 
bearing in mind my house costs 19,000. So I had a running debt with him there, which he was okay about. He, he kind of kept it going. He was, but things, things got worse in that bank because every Shrubs record got more and more expensive and less and less sales with me owing him more and more money. And me basically writing him checks that bounced and made him very angry. And I'm not surprised, you know, but I don't think he quite understood that I wasn't EMI or that I wasn't. <laughs> Yes. That the shops weren't selling enough for his 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 vision of how important they were, kind of thing. And that was the only band I'd had that problem with, so I hadn't had to deal with that before. Yeah. Yes. I didn't deal with it well. I'll admit that. But as I say, the only thing I could have done is just said, "Sorry, let's stop." Yes. Which would have been what I should have said to the shrubs, really, irrespective of what I thought of the music. I should have said, "We can't." you know mathematically this is never going to work financially this is a you know a disaster and funnily enough i was talking to uh, mark who was splat's bass player who also joined the shrubs who talked to nick recently and nick wants to re-release all the stuff on cd i think and mark's saying well you know he's going to throw his own money at it again because that's just how he is you know i think he's remortgaged his house 5,000 times or whatever, you know, and he's, it, to, to him, the money's not important, but when it's my money, and it's not only my money, it's the whole label's money, it becomes, you know, it, it got messy, basically, with the shrubs, and it got a bit acrimonious in the end. Yeah, well, I think it's it's one of those, I mean, we've all had those experiences of, which I try now to have in, where, where, especially as an example, I suppose, with builders, where you just want to say, look, can we just talk the finances rather than saying oh, I'm sure it's going to be fine and then getting that shock when they go here's the bill and you think oh god that, yeah I was just hoping in that slightly yeah. drippy hippie way that I used to have that it was all going to be fine yeah. and we could trust each other but actually you get caught out and have a horrible conversation and a sleepless night or two and then with age you sort of go right let's talk about money let's just yeah. it, let's not get embarrassed about this subject and this is <laughs> At 23, I buried my head in the sand and just thought it'll work itself out. And we'll yes. Have a, we'll have a big hit somewhere and I'll pay for everything. I know. It was, it, was, it was, you know, if you were left of centre, that meant you were the good guys and everyone left of centre was wonderful. <laughs> I mean, the, the independent music business is a ridiculous place to be if, if you have any interest in making a living, really. You know. Unless yeah. you're very, very lucky. You, you're one of the top two or three in the pyramid, you know. Because there was that, there was the pink label, wasn't there? Which um, had their kind of they got a great roster as well. And then was um, obviously Sarah Records came along a bit later, and uh, uh, Vindaloo Records, which got lucky with the Fuzzbox, you know, with um, that particular one, the guy from Rob Lloyd from the Nightingales. So, but then you get people like Alan McGee and and Creation Records. That in the eighties, the bands were pretty impressive, but they weren't going to buy a mansion. So, were you kind of amazed when you know you saw Creation Records? constantly going for it even when they had loveless with my bloody valentine yeah because um in 1986 i was invited over to the new music seminar to talk about indie music and i was on the panel with alan and daniel miller from mute records scott pickering who i can't remember who he was i think he was mrib um did the charts 
Um, Jeff Travis was there, and one or two others. I think was it. Well, there was Glass Records and Native Records, wasn't there? Those yeah. guys were they there? No, they weren't there. There, there was only about five. I, I, I was tiny compared to all the others. But I'd, I'd just been um, the catalogue, which was Rough Trade Zone Trade Magazine, and voted Ron Johnson Label of the Year and all this stuff. And so, so they sent me over to New Music Seminar to do this talk and I sat in this massive room and said, hello, I'm Dave, nobody knows who I am, don't worry about it. And Daniel Miller, I made really good friends with Daniel Miller from New Records, got on, did similar to Pianos, got on with him really well because I'd seen his band play in Derby when he was in the normal. Right. Tiny little cinema with stiff little fingers and I'd met him then and kind of reminded him of that and then New York he looked after me really well and helped me out and showed me places and stuff and kept good contact with him and Alan McGee my my kind of friend stroke he was my employee as in I paid him but he, he was my kind of co-label man and a guy called Martin Nesbitt who was a DJ knew Alan McGee and Bobby Gillespie anyway because Martin probably still has he had the biggest psychedelic record collection in britain and he'd been in um, the guardian and stuff with, with all these records got four walls of his house completely covered in records and um famous for his collection and bobby gillespie used to come and see him to see some of his records every now and again so anyway he knew but i, I didn't like them I, th I thought they were loud mouth self-promoting kind of people and I, I was very much the opposite i was it's the famous thing when I sent the stuff to um, Enemy that they made the little story about was the opening thing is this is a pile of crap from Ron Johnson records and that's how I sold it you know and they <laughs> responded and I always kind of I could never go into places and say we're the best we're great we're fantastic everyone else is an idiot and you know, we'll smash you in the face if you don't agree with you know the kind of legend of the Jesus and Mary chain type thing that, that wasn't for me I wasn't into that yeah, it was pitch at all. I was completely the opposite. So. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. tricky, tricky period. And during that period of the the eighties, you know, there, there was, you know, looking back now, it, there was kind of a, a five year period of like, which is kind of the Smiths, wasn't it? Eighty three to eighty seven. There was, mm -hmm. you know, just indie tastic stuff, and that generation who were there around that period obviously had a good time and then sort of the Smiths break up then ecstasy comes in and there's a new wave of 16 to 18 year olds so your your label sort of captures a kind of a, a chapter in indie pop doesn't it from the 80s yeah I think so and I'm proud of it I think in that we we were kind of staunchly refusing we, we were non-commercial and never really broke that. It, it would have been ridiculous if we ever did have any. If, if we'd have been on top of the problems, something very bizarre would have had to have happened for that to happen. You know, it's because I mean, Age of Chance did get on there, but they they covered a Prince song and they wore lycra for a while. Yes. You know, the Big Flame were never gonna. They might have covered a Prince song, but they were never gonna wear lycra. You know, it, there was a slight difference. You know. We, we were definitely that kind of hard-nosed 
we don't care if we fail or make yes. it so with with things because i still don't really kind of completely understand the music business in a way but publishing do you own the music to the bands that you put on or is that um i did do at the time i don't anymore because obviously the the label went bankrupt in whenever it was 88 i think so then under those circumstances all rights revert back to the artists anyway right and and now, even now, if that hadn't happened, the song, the publishing contracts that I wrote with them were 25-year contracts, so they would have expired now. Yes. So I, I don't have any rights to any Ron Johnson stuff anymore, apart from Splat, because obviously That's I, I would do that. So you know, I'm the yeah. artist. Because I was talking to um, the guy from Native Records, Kevin, somebody mm -hmm. recently, and he said that. I don't think all of it, all the catalogue, but most of it's gone to Cherry Bread Records now. That um, and they seem to have actually hoovered up most indie labels. Has has um, much of your material or the bands that you put on has that sort of gone into compilations and collections and archived? Um, it, it has a bit, and there's some happening at the moment. I mean, Cherry Bread offered me a, a deal, although, although I, as I explained to them, it wasn't really my place to have the deal at that time, but it was not i didn't think it was worth doing it wasn't a very attractive deal and i didn't feel that they were going to curate it in any kind of um careful way or anything so so i basically said no and i understand the cherry red thing but it's if you look at their catalog of releases it's a very broad palette and and some of its stuff i wouldn't personally want to be that associated with, you know, Susie Quattro or whatever it is, you know. It's always Susie Quattro, I know, it's weird, or the Glitter Band, yeah. and, um, you know. So I, I was never interested in that, but more recently, um, there's a guy called Michael Tilly Evil, something like that, who's put up, he's got something called Shambotic Recordings, who's putting out lots of what we might call the ex-Ron Johnson stuff on Shambotic, which is a digital thing that's putting it onto Spotify and iTunes and Apple Music or whatever. And I mean, that's mainly between him and the bands because it, I'm, I'm not really involved, but they're, they're giving me some kind of um, Ron Johnson type name checkers. That's the place of origin. And he contacted me yesterday actually to say, that there is a record label that wants to pull out some of this stuff on vinyl. And am I okay with that? And I said, yeah, fine. It would know, be nice to have a, a credit of the origin of it is Ron Johnson, but it's not owned by Ron Johnson anymore. So Yeah. Well, there's, it's interesting because there's about three little record labels. There's Optic Nerve Records in Preston. And then there's another one called Fire, no, not Fire Records, um, Fire Station Records, I think. They were. They might be in Germany, and then there's another one in New York, which also puts out very obscure indie stuff as well. So, um, yes, there's some very keen enthusiasts. I think. Let me see where this one's from. Glass Modern, apparently, is the name of the record label. Glass Modern. Oh, have to look at that. Yes. So what? So what happened then? In 19, it was, because 1988 is your sort of period. You did twang a witness, Jack, Jack Door with Crowbar. 
yeah. and then the great leap forward. Did you know in 88 that things were slightly on the way out? Um, I think I probably knew a, a bit before that, really, um, because the the X records, um, the double single with the book in the middle of it, sold a lot of copies from our point of view. It sold, I'm tempted to say 15,000, something like that, which was way more than we'd sold of anything else. Um, but unfortunately, the record the distributors sat, set the price for selling it before we'd had the invoice from the X in um, Amsterdam for how much it actually cost to make. And part of the reviews and the success of selling it was there was this is great value at $2.99 for a, for a double single with 144 page book in the middle of it. And it cost something like £2.00. 70 to make the thing in the first place and once the distribution had taken their cut out of it I, I was losing about a pound on every one that was made so although it was a great success it I lost about 15,000 pounds on the deal which nobody really realized at the time including the ex you know and maybe don't even know to this day I don't know but so it was yeah a double-edged sword that one really and then they put out a double e double LP after that, which um, also, you know, they don't make money, double LPs, people don't, didn't buy them. Um, punk, punk bands shouldn't, shouldn't make double LPs and certainly should make triple LPs like The Clash did. So, <laughs> you can get away yeah. with it if you're Yes or Genesis, but probably exactly. not. But yeah, so it was, that was the, they were the band, well, that was the band that sort of, apart from the Shrubs as well, who slightly... Um... Yeah, through no fault of their own. It, it was just a decision by the... Um, and to be fair to the distribution company, they, they didn't demand that I paid them the shortfall immediately or anything like that, but it was an on-running debt, and the shrubs were, were an on-running debt. Paying the X was difficult, but had to be done because they incurred those costs. And then Twang... Did okay, but didn't make any money. Um, Jack Doll with Crowbar made a loss. You know, but they, they made a couple of albums, which albums were a more sensible way to go, but they cost money to record. So they were a, a loss. Great, greatly forward, never had quite the success that Big Flame had. And recording bills were going up. And luckily, I had a friend who had their own recording studio. And he he allowed me to record in his studio without paying. I mean, invoices came out, but I didn't have to pay them. And, and he he's an unsung hero of Ron Johnson in many ways. That he um he he walked away from the car crash of Ron Johnson being owed about thirty thousand pounds that he never worried about. Really, he never asked for, and he, he never you know he, he was very magnanimous about that. God, that's a very decent thing, isn't it, really? Did you did the pressure just get to you in the end? Um, I think I just got fed up with it, to be, to be honest, because, and, and it wasn't as exciting, musically it wasn't exciting to me as it had been before. And yeah. um, we, we weren't getting the same kind of reviews. We weren't making chart positions, even though they're relatively meaningless. It was still nice 
you know, it's nice for the ego when you're in those charts, you know, and there wasn't, but Big Flame had really excited me. At the witness, I really liked. Stump yeah. I really, really liked, but we couldn't hold on to them because, you know, somebody else decided that they could give them more money. And after those three, I never, there was never anyone who kind of, I thought I was really onto something with it. I liked them and I enjoyed them, but they weren't quite as intensely satisfying as those first first three or four were. So I think it, it just lost its impetus. And like you say, the dance music thing was coming along and I formed another record label with my friend who had the studio and a DJ called Graham Park, who became pretty famous in the, in the house world and still going these days. And, and we formed a record called, label called Submission Records. And I was there just to give them advice on how to make records really. Um, it was a bit of an eye-opener for me in that what I saw of these pretty throwaway house records were selling 10, 15,000 records almost instantly and Submission was making money. Right. Stuff that I thought was pretty, pretty lame, to be honest. Although, you know, I was involved in it. So the writing was on the wall for Ron Johnson then. I think. But I, I had to stop that as well so I could bankrupt um, Ron Johnson in the end. Yes, bloody hell. That's quite... I don't really know what the process is. Do you just have to say... What do you have to do to say that's it? it it's incredibly simple. You walk into um, some government office in Nottingham and say, I owe, I've got debts of 90 or £1,000. And they go, is that all? So well, it sounds like a lot to me. And they said, just sign this form. And that was the end of it. It took about 10 minutes. <laughs> because because then... I mean, again, I was naive. I didn't realise. I, I know a lot more about business now, having worked in various educational things, that £90,000 doesn't buy you a couple of photocopiers. You know, it's, it's a drop in the ocean as far as business is concerned. You know? Yes, I guess that's it, actually. Yeah. It doesn't buy you one expensive machine, you know. <laughs> I know. But then it's to an individual, that's quite, you know, there's still quite yeah. a lot of money. And if, if people are sort of hassling you and, and stuff like that. So then after that, you did submission records. How long did that go for? Um, submit, and I was involved in it for about a year and a half. Um, one of their releases got into the national charts around about number 60 or something, I think. Right. Sold 30,000, 40,000 copies, I don't know. Um, but after I left, they, they continued for a while, but they they got a guy who they sold to MCA Records, who, who was going to be the new Terence Trent Derby, and they got big advances for that, and they've, they've all retired off somebody who no one's ever heard of, basically. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. But I, I'd, I'd kind of come out of music by then, more or less. Yeah, relocated basically. Yeah. So does that mean that was it? You just you just now, or have been a fan ever since? Yeah, I mean I've, I've not really been involved in the music business. I mean, I, I helped out a couple of bands making CDs in the early nineties, but but just basically doing the manufacturing for them. But I've, since since then, I haven't had anything to do with actual music business. I've still got quite a few contacts and friends on Facebook or whatever, but I don't. Yeah. I'm not I'm not very nostalgic for it really. And part of 
part of me struggles a little bit with my kind of hardline punk sensibility from 77, 78. It tells me that I shouldn't be kind of lauding stuff from 30, 40 years ago anymore in a way because back then Pink Floyd were dinosaurs and that was only five years before, you know. Yes. I suppose <laughs> um, in nineteen eighty you'd be I struggled at... a little bit with with why they, they're carrying on doing it some some of the bands, you know, because they were young and angry then. They're not so young anymore. Might still be angry, but they're not young anymore. I don't know. It's, it's of course it's entirely up to them, but but personally I, I kind of I don't listen to it anymore, to be, be honest. I got a load of, um, they're here actually, I got sent a load of um, unreleased splat material the other day and listened to it and it's awful. <laughs> 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 There's a couple of good things in there, but a lot of it is really a lot worse than I ever remembered it. <laughs> oh, that's so, so. funny. <clears throat> yes, that's a, that's a strange one. I mean, if you could have said something to a your 16 or 18 year old self starting out with the, the wisdom, an experience you had during that period. Is there anything you would have told them that you might have done something differently? <coughs> yeah, I think it would have been um, <laughs> learn something about business first and don't say yes to everyone. Yes, that is tricky. Because I, I wasn't into it for the business side of it, I was into it because I liked the music and once you've made a couple of mistakes that cost you a couple of thousand pounds when you haven't got a couple of thousand pounds, it's it's almost impossible to, to rectify that unless we'd had one of those you know, out of the blue kind of hits, which we were never likely to have with the kind of bands. I mean, Stump were the biggest chance we had of that, really. And the, that kind of got gazumped from us a little bit, I think. You know. Yes. So, who did they sign to after you, though? They got taken, they got, it was an organisation called Rock Masters, who I think had something to do with Echo and the Bunnyman's manager, I think, I'm not sure. And eventually they ended up on one of the offshoots of one of the major labels, I think. Oh, Ensign Records. Ensign Records, yeah. yeah. And they recorded in... Um, Berlin at the place where David Bowie recorded and all that kind of stuff and got into but again they never actually made it I mean Kev, Kev's working in the care sector now he's, he's still a Facebook friend of mine they were lovely guys you know and and Mick was a, a brilliant you know showman and lyrics were brilliant and everything but they never really made it I and mean, so few people do make it that, that's the problem you know even if you're famous, you know, you don't necessarily make a pile of cash. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the guys from Jesus and Mary Chain aren't exactly rolling in money. You know? Yes, I think I think that's the one thing I've sort of probably realised during these interviews is that, you know, if you were going to do it really seriously, you would really keep an eye on the expenses, you know, you know, much more than you you would want, you know, almost want to keep an eye, you know, an eye on expenses. And one guy did say, you know, the best thing to do is get the advance, 
just don't spend too much money and look at that as the, the you know your wage for a year almost you know don't don't expect to release the record and then get any money after that's gone out because the record label have just got it and they're just going to try and pay their expenses yeah and, and especially it's a catch-22 situation really i mean i had some dealings with um tony wilson from factory records and my understanding of it is that the success of Joy Division very nearly bankrupted them because you don't get the money back from the sales very quickly because of the way music business accounts it's often six months in arrears of the of a certain day of the sales so it can end up being almost nine months in arrears and to make those sales you've got to make all these records yes you've got to have the money there if you have a hit suddenly you've got to be able to finance making 100,000 copies from a label that, I mean, if you look at factory records, not much before Joy Division that sold anything, you know. They were all pretty small fry releases, really. Yeah, absolutely. And also you had that um, experience, well, not you, but New Order had Blue Monday, which again was Mm -hmm. similar to yours, wasn't it, where it was losing money every time they sold it because the sleeve was too expensive. Yeah, exactly. You do these things for artistic reasons, and then they come and bite you. you know? Yes. And, and and I remember the Gang of Four were, were always complaining that they were stuck in a, a contract they could never get out of, and couldn't make music for anyone else. You know, couldn't do anything because the major record labels, again, again, particularly when video came around, if you wanted to. To get to the next step, you had to make a video, and because of the, um, I think it was called the NSTTC or something, the the, the um, union for video makers, you had to have a cameraman, a sound man, another boom guy, blah blah blah. You needed five guys basically on union rate to make a video that could actually be shown on the TV, and the, the price was thousands and thousands and thousands. We tried to make a Ron Johnson video and it lost. We spent about four grand on it and then put it in the bin because we just couldn't afford to carry on. <laughs> and it wouldn't, it, and that wouldn't have been broadcast quality anyway. Yes. And once you made a vid, once you committed to making a video, you committed to making a loss basically on a single, pretty much. Yeah, I do remember. I think it was the the NME brought out this um, "Carry On Disarming," and I'm sure that's got one of possibly your bands on it, but it might not be. I can't remember if Big Flame was on it or not. No, you're not. There no, you go. I don't think we ever got it finished. We couldn't you never... afford it. <laughs> Are you amazed that you only ended up with ninety thousand pound debts, though? Because because it sounds like your most of your bands lost money. All of them lost money, apart from our witness are the only ones who made money. I think they made about two hundred pounds. I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's. I mean, it it paid it paid my wages and the wages of a couple of people who helped me for four or five years so you know i can't complain about that no um, no no not at all but yeah there wasn't that many like oh yes we're, we're up now oh no we're a bit down it's like just it was just a slow bleed to death really wasn't it yeah and it, it doesn't take much of a shrubs for example suddenly putting you five thousand pounds five thousand pounds then was a lot of money to be down if you're just a kid from nottingham who hasn't got any capital behind them? It's all real money, you know. Yes, absolutely. And because the banks, banks would never lend us anything. I remember going to see the bank managers, and he said, "Well, if you were selling shoes, I'd lend you some money." 
but you're selling stuff that has no value and has no resale value and is entirely, you know, as a product, it's useless because it's entirely at the behest of the person whether they want, they don't need it. And half the people who want to buy it will take it off their friends anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Cheerful bank manager. Yes. Oh, well, there you go. But still, you know, you've created some indie pop history. And I'm sure that you're in the book, aren't you? I, did you buy a copy? Of, I know you said you hated nostalgia, but did you get the copy of the book? I, I got sent one of those by um, Neil because yeah, I, I did some, he did an interview for me for that. To be honest, I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> well perhaps perhaps one day you know i guess what i mean i know you said about nostalgia and stuff but what i have noticed in in the last few years is there's just been an awful lot of books and films coming out about this particular period not exactly about indie pop but there's there's been you know films on the wedding presents george best there's the nightingales you know the slits the dolly mixtures um anyway i could keep going on but i just realized there's a lot of you know interest in it and suddenly everyone's writing books as well at the moment as well so um I mean, that's all well and good uh, I, I have no problem with people enjoying it absolutely not it's just just for me i, I find it I, for, for me it would be what's the word um hypocritical to, to, to suddenly start championing again after of years of just kind of going well you know it was what it was it was a period in my life you know so but maybe one of these days someone will put a big flame track on a on a movie or a advert and then um, they will be rich because that's what makes you rich getting an advert Yes, I know. I, I sort of there's a sort of very obscure Scottish band I interviewed where it was on a on the sort of one of those blockbuster films, and um, he went to the opening night with all these celebrities and was couldn't believe that his record was being played on on this film. And um, yes, but there's been you know I, I think someone will probably make some song um, a film about the indie world or sort of you know the 80s anyway, and there'll be obscure records coming on you know on the soundtrack. Yeah. So. I mean, the, the, the problem for the Ron Johnson stuff has been because they, they've had these Scottish indie TV programmes and blah, blah, blah. Because we did so little TV, there's no footage of Ron, there's such little footage of Ron Johnson stuff that we, that we never really get mentioned. There's Stump did the Tube, Mackenzie did a BBC, radio, a BBC TV thing, and that's about it. Apart from that, there's a few quite grainy live videos, but there's nothing that they can put put a talking head into and then segue to an actual video. But that's the problem. You know. Yes. Programs have to be made up of clips, you know. I know. It's a shame about yeah. Big Flame. That would have been amazing to have seen some Big Flame. Makes documentary movies and you know that that's basically he's explained it all to me that that's where we people don't want to talk about Ron Johnson records on a TV show, they want to show something. And if there's nothing to show, it's kind of becomes a bit of a dead in the water kind of enterprise, really, from a filmmaker's point of view. There's no film. There's no film. No. No, no there's too much film, but back then, not enough. Exactly. So, you know, hey-ho. <laughs> hey, I know. Hey